Before we get to tonight's show, I wanted to tell you about a great new resource called clinicwiki.org. This is a free, open access, primary care teaching wiki. If you want, you can create an account for free and start to contribute. The, this is founded by residents for residents cultivating great teaching resources for primary care topics like high blood pressure, chronic kidney disease, pharyngitis, asthma, knee pain, etc. They have faculty advisors from around the country. Please check it out at clinicwiki.org. Is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible to serve. We should always do your own homework and let's know the Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Is anybody here? Hi, Matt. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm I'm really off without Stuart here. I I I don't. Even though Stuart's unpredictable, I feel like he's predictably unpredictable or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you can't. I actually, I kind of winced at the part where he normally interrupts. So he's. I feel like he's here with us in spirit. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And with us tonight, though, is Dr. Justin Burke. Justin, thank you for joining us. Hello, thank you. It's great to be on. Yeah, Justin has been behind the scenes on a bunch of episodes, and on this one, he got us a great guest. Uh, Paul, before we be, before we tell them about Dr. Feldman, can you can you tell the audience a little bit about the show? Be happy to, Matt, though. If they've made it this far, they probably figured this out already. But we are an internal medicine podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. We also do make a little bit of small talk with our guest up front uh, just to get to know what balances them out. But if you want to skip past that part, you can look in the show notes and sort of move to the proper timestamp. It just means that you'll be a worse person for it. So this this episode was an idea that Justin had on uh, to to bring the things we do for no reason series, which has been popularized uh, at the Society for Hospital Medicine, and we wanted to do a show featuring some of some of the uh, common practices that we are that it, that fit into things we do for no reason. Doctor Leonard Feldman, or Lenny, as we will call him on the show, is the founder and program director of the John Johns Hopkins. Combined Internal Medicine, Pediatrics, Urban Health Residency, and the Osler Internal Medicine, Urban Health Primary Care Track. He graduated from Brown University and received his medical degree from the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Dr. Feldman completed his internship and residency in internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of North Carolina. He is the editor-in-chief for Society of Hospital Medicine, Consultative and Perioperative Medicine Essentials for Hospitalists, and a deputy editor for the Journal of Hospital Medicine, where he's the editor of the series, Choosing Wisely, Things We Do for No Reason. His research is focused on resident and provider decision-making, and he is a leader in medical education, program development, and high-value care. Plus, he was an absolute joy to talk to, as you are about to find out. Okay, now let's just leave a big blank space here for a pun that would hurt my soul <laughs> and just assume that happened. All right, good stuff. Okay. On with the show. <laughs> so thank you, Lenny, for joining us on the podcast here. We have been planning this for quite a while, and uh, we're really excited to have you join us. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. As always, we want our audience to to hear your one liner so they can get to know get to know you a little bit before we get into the main topic. So I've I've been working on a one liner. I, I don't have many one liners uh, to describe myself, but <laughs> but I've tried to put one together for you. Um, I guess uh, I'm I'm a, I'm a 45 year old med peds clinician and educator, husband, and soon to be first time father. Lover of baseball and musicals and ice hockey with an unhealthy addiction to Marvel Netflix series. <laughs> which which Marvel series are on Netflix? Oh, all of them. Uh, <laughs> Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, uh, you name them. Uh, the Avengers, I've I've watched them. Okay, Daredevil. It, it's. It, it, Iron Fist. It's a lot of fun. It's good to do when you're on the treadmill. 
Okay. At least you're multitasking. It's you're not just purely wasting time with the no, the not Marvel just purely series. wasting time. Although I can do that too. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, yeah. Let me. So I, I think I want to ask about the musical. So as as someone who has trouble suspending disbelief and watching two people just sort of uh, sing scream into each other's faces, like what's a what's one of the best musicals that you've seen, say, in the past five years? What's what's the one that you'd recommend to get me back into the genre? Oh my! Well, I, I mean, I, I, the most recent. So I haven't been able to see Hamilton. So that's uh, that. That I is a pat answer, uh, but it, it's been <laughs> too expensive yeah. for for a uh, uh, an internist pediatrician at Johns Hopkins. Uh, we can't afford to go see Hamilton. Uh, so instead, uh, the last time I was in New York City, uh, we went to see SpongeBob SquarePants the musical. <laughs> I believe we were the only people in the theater who did not bring a child with them. Uh, although there were certainly plenty of children and most of them, I think were kicking the back of my chair during the entire musical, but it is amazing. It is really fun. Uh, if you want to see a beautifully done, uh, entertaining, uh, really great music, tap dancing, uh, you're going to enjoy yourself uh, at SpongeBob. It's a fantastic recommendation. Thank you. This is the first time SpongeBob has been recommended on the show, so it's a, it's a milestone for everyone. <laughs> That's what happens when you invite a pediatrician. Justin, did you want to ask any questions here? Uh, no, I just want to do a shout out for Rent from the urban health standpoint of musicals. Uh, <laughs> I have a question for Lenny. So um, one of the questions that is often uh, asked is, what's one of the best pieces of advice that you've ever received as a learner or as a teacher. Uh, any thoughts on advice for residents and future medical educators? Sure. Um, so I, I was always given the advice that it is okay to do the unconventional, the thing that everyone else is not doing. So in middle school and high school, I played the baritone, the euphonium, uh, a musical instrument that most people don't play. My wife is certain that is the reason I got into college. Uh, <laughs> and then I took a career uh, as an internist and pediatrician, which is usually not the road that most people choose to go down, So, which has worked out uh, really well for me and, and been a wonderful career. So I, I think going with the unconventional is, uh, is a way that uh, can really – broaden your horizons and uh, really make your career. I think as a, as a teacher, one of the things that I think about is making sure that the learners are willing to put their money down, make them make a choice, have them tell you what, what they want to do instead of you telling them what to do uh, is, is usually a, a fun thing. And then finally in my career, uh, it's been about networking, going out and meeting people, making connections uh, that's been a, a huge part of of how you continue to grow in your career in your role. If you don't put yourself out there to meet people and network, uh, it it really stymies you. So that's been a, a really important part of of my career. To to start things off before even a clinical case, if Lenny wanted to touch base about what is things we do for no reason, what is high value care, and then maybe we could go into some specifics. So Things We Do For No Reason started out as a series of talks at the Societal, Society of Hospital Medicine annual meeting. Uh, Dan Brotman, uh, I have to give credit to him for coming up with the idea back in 2012 and sort of gave me the ball to run with it. And I started giving these talks at the annual meeting. And in some form or another, we've been giving those talks ever since. And then I had the good fortune of working with Dr. Andy Auerbach at UCSF, who's the editor for the Journal of Hospital Medicine, who said, hey, um, let's take these things we do for no reason talks and put them into a journal and create a series around that in the journal. And so I've been the editor of that journal series ever since. And we started in about October of 2015. And now we have over 20 different topics that we've written about in the Journal of Hospital Medicine, which has been a ton of fun to be involved in. And basically, things we do for no reason are topics of everyday significance. It's They're the kind of um, 
diagnostic and therapeutic decisions that we make mostly based on what we've learned to do throughout our career, the kind of things that have been handed down from generation to generation that we don't question and turn out to be things that aren't actually helpful to patients. And when you think about high-value care, people talk about the health benefits, sort of a, a ratio of health benefits over cost. And what I've focused on and things we do for no reason are generally things that really have no health benefits but do have costs. And that's kind of the low-hanging fruit in the high-value care world. You could get into um, more difficult areas where you're trying to decide which of the two therapies that both work, which one is more of a higher value. We haven't even gone there yet. We're just trying to get rid of the practices that we still do every day that there's no reason for us to be doing them in the first place. <laughs> I, reviewing them for the show, it's one of the few – series that I've ever read that has filled me with a mounting sense of shame. Like as I go through <laughs> article by article, I just, I feel worse and worse about myself. So it's, it's a fantastic series. <laughs> well, right. they're not made, they are certainly not written to make people feel bad because they are things that we've all done and I've done. And uh, the, the reason they've come up in the, in the series is that we're all so familiar with them that they resonate with people. Uh, right. And so, Yes, we've all had experiences with them, and I can understand um, the shame, but we all wear that that um, low-value uh, badge, I guess, often with uh, not much honor. Uh, yeah, badge of shame. All right. So we that's a great summary of what of what high value care is and, and, and the origin story for, you know, to, to go on your Marvel theme here, to the origin story <laughs> for this series. Yes. And uh, Justin, do we have a case here that we wanted to kick things off with? We do have a case. So our case from Cash Life Memorial is there's a new intern on overnight for the first time. And labs come back and he finds that a patient's creatinine is elevated. The patient's 54. He has multiple comorbidities. He's had a lot of imaging, a lot of medications. But he's very eager, wants to do a full workup uh, to diagnose this new acute kidney injury and the cause. So he gets an ultrasound and urine electrolytes to rule out obstruction and to calculate the fractional excretion of sodium or phena to determine if the kidney injury is pre-renal. So Lenny, is there any evidence behind using ultrasound in acute kidney injury and or urine electrolytes? And what do you think about this workup? So I appreciate that the intern really wants to do a good job. And when you ask, uh, I know Matt is there... You guys did a, a really interesting study uh, in just a couple years ago to try to ask residents why they do unnecessary tests. And one of the main reasons that they do unnecessary tests is they don't want to disappoint the attending in the morning. <laughs> and I think that's an excellent uh, scenario for this as well. I, the, the intern really wants to do the right thing and, and wants to look good in the morning. And, um, I, and one of the main points to take away for attendings out there is to get across to your interns early on what the expectations are and that they are not disappointing you if they haven't done every possible test, that they should be doing the test that makes sense, not just do every test so they can cover all the bases and, and look like they've thought about everything. To me, being Oslarian is about thinking uh, and it's not about just sending off tests willy-nilly, uh, which sometimes happens um, in hospitals every once in a while. <laughs> I I thought you were going to say, uh, remember that great commercial from the 80s or 90s that I learned it from watching you? I thought that was going <laughs> to... I thought yeah. that was going to be the number one reason for our for our younger members of the audience. There was a famous commercial where uh, this father found his son's drug paraphernalia, and he's like, "Where'd you learn this?" And, and then the kid's like, "I learned it from watching you, Dad." Was that all part of uh, Nancy Reagan's "Just Say No"? <laughs> Probably, yep. sure was. Her wildly successful anti-drug campaign, yeah. <laughs> wow. Maybe maybe we can parry the, parody those for your series, Things We Do For No Reason. <laughs> I'll, that idea is yours if you want it. <laughs> uh, only if you're willing to write it up, Matt. <laughs> okay, sure. Why not? All right. I'm sorry. I, I'm derailing things. So we were talking about uh, we were talking about our interns not wanting to disappoint us, and that's why they're ordering this ultrasound and the urine electrolytes. 
Yeah. So the first thing to think about when you're when you're deciding whether to order urine electrolytes, which I would say generally there's almost no reason ever to do it. But the one of the first teaching points is that the urine electrolytes, the FINA, is all about trying to decide whether the patient is pre-renal or has acute tubular injury. So it's pre-renal versus ATI. And and, and really, it, it, pre-renal meaning sort of a hypoperfusion type state for the kidneys. Um, whether that means that the patient has heart failure and has an ineffective arterial blood volume because of heart failure, or whether they're actually hypovolemic and have an ineffective arterial blood volume because they're hypovolemic, whatever you're going to describe um, to, to actually be uh, pre-renal. So you're doing the test, ostensibly, it's only to decide between pre-renal and ATI. And oftentimes, those two things coexist to begin with. And if you bother to take a good history, you can get a really good sense early on whether the patient is going to be pre-renal or not. You've had this patient in the hospital. You can check out their weights. Has their weight been changing? You know if you've been giving them diuretics or not, which would help you decide if they're pre-renal or not. Uh, and then it doesn't take into account all the other things that can uh, mess with the results of these tests, which just the operating characteristics of the tests aren't very good to begin with. But if you have chronic kidney disease, it doesn't make the test um, nearly as easy to uh, uh, interpret. The, the other important part of this is the studies that have been done when they look at the fractional excretion of sodium or the fractional excretion of urea to try to decide between pre-renal versus ATI. Those studies were done with very small numbers. These are not big studies that have really tried to verify that uh, FINA or FEurea is a good test. And secondly, they're always done in oliguric patients. So you need to have a patient who's making less than basically 500 cc's of urine a day for them to even be considered for for uh, a FEurea or FE. Uh, sodium uh, test. Um, but in the end, it, it's all about trying to decide whether you need to, how you're going to uh, improve the patient's renal perfusion, decrease this hypoperfusion, whether that means you're giving diuretics because the patient's actually in heart failure and that will improve the patient's perfusion, or whether you're giving volume and that's going to help the patient's perfusion, or whether this is really just ATI at this point and you don't have to give any of those things. Um, trying to to make sure that their renal perfusion is corrected is really the thing that you want to do, not send off tests that are impossible to interpret a lot of the time and um, really aren't going to stop you from uh, trying to improve the patient's perfusion no matter what the result is that you get in the test. Does this extend to things like looking at the urine-specific gravity or just looking at the urine-sodium in isolation? Can those be helpful if you're trying to determine these things? Well, one of the problems with specific gravity is if you have AT, if you have an ATI type kind of situation, you're going to get a 10-10 on that um, specific gravity no matter what's going on in the kidney. So then you don't know what that means. Um, so these are actually tests that were supposed to be better than doing just the sodium or just the specific gravity alone, yet they have not panned out to be better than those tests or, or good enough to be able to make decisions um, that, uh, or that will change your management decisions. You, the, the bottom line with these things is a, a lot of times, particularly when you're an intern, um, you're so worried about your diagnostic skills, you just want some sort of test to confirm what you think is going on. But go with what you think is going on from your history, from your physical exam. You don't need the test, which actually really isn't a good test, to confirm what's happening. I should ask you, this seems pretty controversial because everyone does this, right? So what do your detractors say about this, about your view of the urine electrolytes? Well, there are some, still some believers um, in, in urine electrolytes. Uh, my friend Bob Center down at the University of Alabama has given me a hard time about this as uh, one of his professors uh, in uh, residency, I believe, or medical school. I can't remember which at MCV uh, was one of the first to make these um, do a study of 17 patients to determine that 
Fe urea or Fe sodium might be a good test uh, to differentiate between pre-renal and 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 ATI. Uh, but despite that, uh, I still th- I still hold uh, that these tests are not nearly good enough to be able to change your management, and you should go with your history and physical. Well, he he is our chair of medicine, so I won't <laughs> criticize I won't criticize our chair on air. I'm ju- I'm just a listening with an open mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Bob, please don't kick me out of the family. Uh, <laughs> okay, and what about the renal ultrasound? Oh, so the renal ultrasound. So in this scenario, it, you have to ask yourself: Does this patient have any risk factors that would? lead them to have an obstruction, right? You're doing the renal ultrasound because you want to see if this patient has hydronephrosis. And if the patient's been urinating, the patient hasn't had any symptoms of obstruction, the likelihood that they've suddenly developed an obstruction in the middle of their hospitalization is extraordinarily low. Uh, and besides that, what makes the pretest probability even lower is that you have a lot of other reasons for this patient to have an acute kidney injury uh, that you don't then need to try to invoke some sort of obstruction to uh, be able to come up with an, an etiology for the AKI. So generally, in patients with a low pretest probability, meaning they don't have other risk factors, that they're not having hematuria, you're not getting some story that they have uh, renal stone, they are not known to have some sort of mass sitting in their abdomen uh, or pelvis. Uh, if, if you're not getting the risk factors, the likelihood that they actually have hydronephrosis that you're going to need to intervene upon is probably in the 0.1 to 0.4% range. And you would probably need to spend about $40,000 or so uh, uh, in terms of doing multiple ultrasounds of different patients in order to find one of them where you would say, oh, yes, we should do uh, an intervention for this hydronephrosis in this patient that we that we found. Um, so basically what I would say is try to correct what you think is the cause for the patient's AKI. And if after you've done that, they're still not getting better, that's when you should start thinking about the ultrasound. The other thing to think about is uh, a, a test that actually really hasn't been studied very much that I can find in the literature is uh, just getting the free bladder scan that you can get on basically any floor in a hospital um, to see, particularly in a guy, do they have some sort of outlet obstruction, um, particularly is this BPH, and do I just need to put in a Foley and that's going to relieve everything? That costs you essentially nothing because those tests are – those. Uh, machines are sitting on most floors these days. The nurses can do it. It doesn't take much time. Uh, so that's a, that I think an off underused test, uh, that could replace some of these unnecessary renal ultrasounds. Yeah, that's a great, I, I think that's a great workaround. The other, the other thing I've, sometimes I've went to bladder scan a patient and they actually, it comes back, they have like no urine in their bladder. And then, and then that gives you kind of a different, okay, this person's n- not making any urine provided it's a, a patient you believe that you're actually getting an accurate scan right. uh, with the with the bladder scan. I, so I, I do like that workaround. Paul and Justin, before we move on to the next, any other? Oh, I'm sorry, Lenny. No, and, and then in the end, you can always stick in the Foley, right? If right. you stick in the Foley and lots of urine comes out, you know that there's, <laughs> and they tried to go to the bathroom, um, you know there's something going on there. Uh, and if you stick in the Foley and nothing comes out and you're pretty sure you're in the bladder, you you have a very different uh, view of, of what's happening. Yes. Good point. But don't keep the Foley in. Get it out. <laughs> Any other comments on this, Paul or Justin, before we move on to the next topic? I guess uh, my question would be, is there, can you name a scenario in which uh, checking renal lights would be, would be really helpful? Like, are there any situations where this might be of high utility? So the one area where people tend to say that it could be helpful is whether, when you think someone might have hepatorenal, um, that their Fe sodium, um, and really their spot sodium should be so low, um, that if it is elevated, it is much less uh, likely to be hepatorenal. Uh, those patients are supposed to be very sodium avid. They're trying to reabsorb as much as possible. 
Um, their FE sodium should be extremely low, definitely uh, much less than 1%. Their, uh, um, their spot sodium check should be in the 10 regions. Uh, so if they're um, elevated, that might actually help you say, eh, I'm not actually sure this patient has hepatorenal syndrome. Gotcha. And the, and the ultrasound I'd only do, again, if they have risk factors for having obstruction or you've been working on this for a little bit trying to uh, uh, improve their kidney function and it's not happening, even though you think you've fixed the perfusion problem and it's persisting, then you may want to actually check the, the renal ultrasound. Uh, but it should not be the uh, knee-jerk reaction when you see the creatinine go up. Got it. Got it. Justin, what is our what is our next topic here? So our same intern has a new admission, and this patient presents with anemia. So broadly, it's kind of a leading question, are there any specific common labs that are ordered without strong evidence in uh, patients with anemia? No problem, well, Justin. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, it, it happens that there are some tests. Um, the the test that that I'm focusing on generally in anemia uh, is is folate testing, um, checking folate levels. Uh, it, it at this point in uh, the history of the world is a test that adds very little uh, to the workup of patients with anemia. First of all. We shouldn't even think of doing it until you find a mega, megaloblastic anemia, right? If, if the patient's MCV is low, we should clearly not even be thinking about sending a, a folate. Um, you want to make sure that the patient at least has uh, an elevated MCV uh, to, to even think about it. Now, the, the issue is this is really is a residual um, kind of vestigial problem. We... It used to be that there was a lot of folate deficiency in this country. And then in 1996, the government said, hey, we need to start supplementing our grains, our cereals with folic acid. And by 1998, that was done. And the rate of folic acid deficiency or folate deficiency uh, in this country has dropped precipitously since the fortification happened in, in 1998. And so if you look at the general population and try to find people with a folate deficiency, it's really hard to find. On top of that, the tests that we use, the serum folate, the RBC folate, are bad tests. And unfortunately, there's really no gold standard to uh, be able to evaluate them uh, against. But there's a lot of false positives and a lot of false negatives involved with your serum folates and your RBC folates. I was talking with a colleague today who said, well, I ordered one on a patient who had an elevated MCV uh, to, to try to evaluate for their folate deficiency, but it was normal when I checked. Um, and the problem is if you've just eaten a meal uh, that was rich in folic acid, you're then going to find that the folate, the serum folate level actually is normal when you check um, because it tells you what's going on in the serum. It really doesn't tell you uh, what's going on in the tissues. And so that really doesn't rule out a uh, folic acid or a folate deficiency uh, in that patient. Uh, so my general rule of thumb is if I think that they could have a folate deficiency because they're someone who drinks a lot of alcohol and they don't take in much food, well, I need to work on their alcoholism and help treat that so that they start eating food that has folic acid in it. Certainly, we can also supplement them, but if we don't actually treat their alcoholism, they're still not going to take the folic acid I just ordered for them anyway. So we should get at the root of the problem um, for why they might be uh, folate deficient. And the folic acid to add that as a supplement to people's um, diets is a, a very cheap medication. So probably reasonable if you have a high index of suspicion that they are uh, folate deficient, just start supplementing them and then recheck their CBC in a couple of weeks to see if the MCV is coming down. Because uh, what you also don't want to do is have premature closure. Oh, I checked the folate 
uh, level and I found that it was low, they therefore must have a folate deficiency. And really, they have something much more important going on, like B12 deficiency that actually causes real problems down the road if you miss it. And you certainly don't want to mask their B12 deficiency by treating uh, their folate deficiency. So uh, important to to retest after you've started them on supplementation to see if you've actually improved their uh, MCV and and hopefully their anemia. I think part of part of folate being ordered so much might be a systems issue because in multiple places where I've worked, when you go to order a B12, you it pairs it with a folate. It's like, oh, you must want this too, and they. It's like <laughs> you almost have to take an extra step to order the B12 by itself. And and at Hopkins we have we have put on uh, on our computer EMR system uh, and you can uh, beep out if you'd like. Uh, we, yes, sure. I would like very much. I, I, <laughs> we absolutely will. <laughs> no, no need for they don't need any free advertising uh, since they already rule the world. That we have already put a message on our EMR saying that uh, there is no need to order. Uh, serum folates or RBC folates that they're not going to help you with your management decisions. So I, I think there are some systems I- improvements that can be done uh, to try to minimize, mitigate that uh, that issue. It's we actually this is apropos of nothing other than faulty EMRs, but we actually have a fatigue order set that includes Lyme serologies that just crushes my soul every time oh. I see it. Oh, yeah, no, I know. Oh. Yes, so a lot my of soul has just been crushed. It's 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 so upsetting. Happily, I've never had a resident actually do it, but God Almighty. Um, but along the lines of anemia, so let's let's say this is like a seventy eight year old patient, maybe some CKD new to the health system. We're torturing the intern. We don't get much of a story. They're there for fatigue, um, and they come in and their hemoglobin six point eight. Um, so you go ahead and just pull the trigger on two units, right? I think that was the question I wanted to ask. It should always be two <laughs> units of RBCs that we order. Um, no, I would not go ahead and just. Uh, order two units. Um, We've had a campaign uh, at Hopkins, uh, which I think has been performed in many places. Um, Why give two two if one will do? Uh, So basically, give the the smallest amount that you need in order to treat the patient's uh, anemia. Now, first of all, oftentimes people will use less than seven as the cutoff. I think that's reasonable from the literature that's out there. That being below seven is is a cutoff that that we can generally use to decide to transfuse a patient. Um, you can argue maybe why don't we just watch this person? They're doing fine. They're they're not symptomatic. Uh, you gave uh, the example that the patient is fatigued, so you know is that fatigue from their uh, anemia? Maybe um, uh, if they've been chronically around seven, they're probably not that fatigued. Uh, if it if it's been going on for a long time, and if they're acutely down to seven and fatigued from that well then, then we need to really figure out why they're anemic i suppose uh, um so, so uh, generally i would say yes let's let's try to limit the amount of blood to what's actually needed and um i i'm sure like you guys uh, i was taught well if you're going to transfuse somebody just give them two uh and that really doesn't make sense when you when you think about it and i'm uh, pleased to see that many of us now We'll consider just giving the patient one unit, reassessing, and then deciding uh, if another unit is needed. We had a we had a past guest who uh, Doctor Auerbach, uh, also down from your area, but I different institution. But he he uh, he was he advocates actually just giving iron IV iron for patients who are hemoglobin around seven, symptomatic anemia, as long as they're not like actively bleeding out. You can actually give them iron, and that will make a lot of patients feel better. And you might even be able to get by without a transfusion if it's been like a slow drop. Yeah, I I love it. I mean, uh, you know, I, I would of course make sure that they're not iron overloaded to begin with. I don't want to give yeah. someone more iron if they already have way too much. But I I like the the concept of that uh, a lot. Um, and uh, what better uh, opportunity to give someone a, a good bit of iron than when they're sitting in the hospital doing nothing else? Right, right. If there's no other questions on this topic, the next thing we wanted to talk about is some other labs. Let's say that this patient that we were just talking about working up for anemia also seems pretty malnourished. I'm definitely going to want that pre-albumin, right? 
<laughs> but of course, you want the pre-albumin and the albumin. <laughs> now, the, the pre-albumin is the test that for shorthand people often call transthyretin. Um, and really the, the name actually is the, the long name is transthyroxin retinol. Um, pre-albumin actually has nothing to do with albumin. Uh, the the only reason that it's been called prealbumin is an artifact of the electrophoretic pattern that it makes, um, but not that it has anything to do with albumin whatsoever. They are totally separate molecules. Um, transthyroxin retinol or transthyretin or prealbumin, what, what that does um, is it shuttles uh, vitamin A around the body and T3 and T4 around the body and actually has a greater affinity for T4 than, than T3. Um, and what happened was in 1972, there was a study done of Senegalese children who were very malnourished and they checked these children's prealbumin levels and albumin levels and found that their prealbumin levels were very low. And then they brought these children into a hospital type setting and fed them and treated them for three weeks. And these were extremely malnourished children. And what they found um, is the prealbumin levels uh, and their albumin levels went up over those three weeks as as they fed them and treated them. Now, what I would contend is I am not at all clear that those children in Senegal who were being treated for malnutrition were only being treated for malnutrition. And my, I would contend that those children were probably pretty inflamed and had other illnesses going on uh, as this was taking place. And what we know about prealbumin and albumin, and and this interns who are listening, um, when you have a patient who comes into the hospital who is inflamed for whatever reason, their bad pneumonia, their sepsis, whatever it is, you will notice that their albumin, if you follow their albumin, and I am not encouraging anyone to follow albumins, <laughs> But if you were to follow their albumin and particularly their prealbumin, you will see it drop uh, because it is a negative inflammatory marker. It goes down as inflammation goes up. So these children in Senegal, as they were treated for probably malnutrition and whatever inflammatory issues were going on with them and were nursed back to health, of course, their prealbumin levels uh, and albumin levels went up. So the key is actually to look at a patient population that is malnourished, but isn't inflamed. And my friend Tom Fanukin and colleagues over at our Bayview campus did this great study where they looked at all of a a systematic review meta-analysis of all of the studies where they could look at patients who were malnourished, but not inflamed. Um, and do you guys have any idea what, what patient populations they would use for that? Were these patients with dementia, like advanced dementia? So you could do some advanced dementia patients. Um, they didn't have a lot of those in their study, but there have been studies with advanced dementia patients where they brought them into a hospital setting, taught them how to cook or cooked with them, and saw that as they ate more, um, their albumin and prealbumin levels didn't really change, but their weight did. So that's a good group to look at. Um, but what they actually looked at were anorexic patients. Oh, sure. And patients who've been doing hunger strikes. So if you go to your psychiatry floor where your patients with anorexia are, it, I don't think it will take you very long to decide that those patients are malnourished, right? You look at them, you know those patients are malnourished. But if you look at their albumin and their prealbumin levels, they're normal. And I was always struck by that because uh, I do a lot of general medicine consults at, at Hopkins and we have a large anorexia population. And it is striking to me that these patients' albumin levels were normal when they had extremely low BMIs. And what they saw in Tom Fanukin's study was that you needed a BMI of 11, 10 in that range before you actually saw the prealbumin and the albumin start to drop. So if we need an albumin or prealbumin to get a sense that those patients are malnourished when you have a BMI of 10 or 11, <laughs> we probably should be hanging up our stethoscopes at that point. 
Um, so not a great test um, when you already know the patient is really malnourished. The other group that they saw the, the pre-albumin and albumin actually drop is if you didn't eat for 45 days. If you were on a 45-day hunger strike, again, you're able to see that their albumin and pre-albumin drop. And if you were concerned that that patient might not be malnourished and you needed to test, then that's the time to do it. But of course, 45 days of not eating, I think we all would say that patient is malnourished at that point. We we have been dying to have Dr. Finucan on the podcast to talk about this because I had heard him give a, a lecture on this probably four four years ago or so now. It was I think it was on Audio Digest and he just has this wonderful talk uh, on this. I think it's about like a 30 or 45 minute talk about how there's this famine state that you're talking about that someone on a hunger strike or someone with anorexia has. They're in a famine state where the only problem is lack of food. And if you feed them, they get better. They, But these other patients, the ones that we are commonly taking care of in the hospital on internal medicine services or or even out of the hospital, they're sick, they have chronic inflammation, they have malignancy if you try to feed those patients, unless you fix the inflammation, you fix the malignancy, they're, they're just not going to gain weight. It's not, it's not a calorie problem necessarily. It's, it's the inflammation. And that's, that's absolutely true. And, and if you do any work in the pre-op world, uh, what you'll see for um, post-op pulmonary complications, one of the risk factors is having a low albumin. And so the question always comes up then, well, do we just need to feed this patient in order to make sure their albumin comes up so that they're better candidate for surgery so that they're less likely to have a post-op pulmonary complication? And again, this it's the same answer. Probably their albumin is low to begin with because they have some other process going on that is causing inflammation that feeding them won't get them out of that, um, uh, won't fix that issue. You need to do just get the surgery done, which will hopefully fix the inflammation process if you need to take out a cancer or, or something like that. You definitely need Tom Finucane on and you need Tom Finucane talking about the scourge of treating patients with diabetes with insulin. Okay. I, I'm i all about having him on. So if you, if you want to put in a good word. <laughs> he will rock your world. Oh, I'm happy to do it. He will rock your world. He's the best. Yeah, he also uh, what somebody recommended to me too. He had a paper he wrote about UTIs being overtreated in the in uh, older older patients, especially women, uh, which I thought was also a fascinating paper that was that was recently out there. He is he's uh, definitely a contrarian, and although I think hopefully um, asymptomatic bacteria is something. It's a choosing wisely topic. Hopefully, it's it's yeah. one of those topics that people are paying attention to as. Uh, um, uh, a thing we certainly shouldn't be doing. I think that one has some traction now. Maybe not with family concerned family members, but uh, definitely among clinicians, it seems to have some traction. Justin or Paul, any other questions on on this topic before we move on? No, I I think we covered this one pretty aggressively. Okay, Justin, what's up next? Our hero, the intern, uh, has a patient that he's covering. Uh, the patient has. Um, maybe an underlying malignancy, has a known DVT, and overnight starts having acute shortness of breath, some tachycardia. He's worried about a pulmonary embolism and wants to order a chest CT. He puts the order in and gets a pop-up that the patient has a shellfish allergy uh, and is very concerned and doesn't know what to do. This was a big one that I think came up on Twitter and Facebook a little bit. Um, is a shellfish allergy a contraindication for contrast imaging? Funny you should ask, Justin. <laughs> so it actually turns out that they've done some studies where they've asked cardiologists and radiologists, do you ask your patients about uh, shellfish allergies uh, before you give them dye? Uh, and it was something like 60% of radiologists and 80% of cardiologists do. I mean, it's a crazy high number of people who ask their patients about Shellfish allergies. So wh where does this come from? So the idea is shellfish have iodine in them and contrast has iodine in them. And so if you have an allergy to shellfish, then maybe you will also have an allergy to the contrast because they both have iodine. 
And of course, the other thing that has iodine in it is a lot of the food that we eat and us. Um, and hopefully not too many of us are allergic to the iodine in our own body. And what it turns out is we're probably not allergic to when we're allergic to selfish. It's not the iodine that we're allergic to. It's the, some of the proteins that are in the shellfish. So the shellfish allergy has nothing to do with having a contrast allergy. Um, what makes you more likely to have a contrast allergy is having any allergies in general, um, shellfish among them, but any allergy in general. So if you're an allergic type person, you have atopy, you have asthma, you have any kind of food allergy, you have a probably two to three times more likelihood of having an allergy to contrast as well. Now, what's great is we're using a lot of low osmolality contrast these days, and the rate of significant contrast allergies are extremely low, less than 1% in the 0.1, range. It doesn't happen very often. So fortunately, if you're two to three times more likely to have something that doesn't happen very often, it's still not very often. Now, the people who are likely to have a contrast allergy is someone who actually had a contrast allergy in the past. So those are the patients we really need to worry about. If the intern knew that that patient had a contrast allergy, yes, then make sure you pre-medicate the patient so that they don't have an allergy, uh, an allergic reaction again, which turn out to be mostly these anaphylactoid type uh, uh, reactions and not IgE mediated reactions. But it, it doesn't really matter because some of these anaphylactoid reactions, the contrast can be really freaking bad. And so you don't want them to happen. Uh, so if you had a, an allergy in the past to contrast, make sure you premedicate. If you have other allergies, no one thinks you should premedicate those patients uh, just because you're giving them contrast. Obviously, they're going to be watched really closely, but but you don't need to premedicate them at all. And this connection, special connection between shellfish and um, iodinated uh, contrast is totally made up um, and uh, one of those that myths that has just been passed down from generation to generation. It's fascinating. Yeah, because we've always like, how are you allergic to an essential element that you actually need to make like thyroid hormones? Like it's just it's not something that ever made intuitive sense to me. So it's it's so nice to actually hear it said out loud. I I would agree. It, it It's um it's one that really, if you think about it, isn't intuitive. If you don't think about it and it's just something that's told to you uh, as an intern uh, or a medical student, it's just one of those things that's easy to internalize and go, oh, oh shellfish allergy. Got to watch out for that. My my take home here so far is uh, so don't don't ask about a shellfish allergy if you're like in relation to a radiologic test unless if you're about to feed someone shellfish yeah ask about an allergy but <laughs> if you're if you're going to send them for a radiographic test you should ask if they have a contrast allergy to actual contrast and if they've had a bad reaction then we should pretreat those people otherwise uh, the risk is very low and we can we can proceed and just just kind of monitor the person for, um, yeah, just, just proceed. Tell them that it's a very low risk and, and, and go forward. Now, Matt, does serve lobster often? Oh, I work at Cashlack. Yeah, Cash Cashlack does. So at okay. Cashlack, uh, we do not serve, uh, shellfish in the hospital. Um, it, yeah, we don't, we don't really serve much shellfish in the hospital. And, but they do, I, I haven't paid as much attention. I think I'm going to be like a lot more vigilant about this now, but I, I have had some pushback when I'm trying to send somebody with a quote iodine allergy for a contrast study. So yes, and it, the and then you get dig into it, and the patient says, "Oh, I have a shellfish allergy, so they exactly. told me I'm allergic to iodine, so I can't get contrast agents." That's someone told them that along the line. So I have run into problems here. That was going to be my question for you. Do you, do you, have you has this been debunked at your institution? And can you get can you get CAT scans of patients with a shellfish allergy? Generally, we don't have a problem with that. Um, it's it, it has mostly been debunked. I think every once in a while there is some craziness that goes on like anywhere else, but generally they don't give us uh, pushback about that. Justin, have you had any pushback? 
I've not had pushback, but to Matt's point, I think asking about a shellfish allergy before feeding the patient shellfish is things we do for good reason uh, and seems like a reasonable uh, practice. Yep, I agree. You're you're uh, you're wise. You're wise for your state of training there. Your stage of training. <laughs> I appreciate that. Appreciate that. I think it's a reflection of his program director. <laughs> oh, that that could be fair as well. That's fair. Did we have one more? Did we have one more case here, Justin? I think, um, or are we are we out of time? I think Paul had a question that he wanted to go into that I think is a good one for Lenny. Oh yeah. So let's. Let's so our patient um, while they're waiting for their transfusion of two units and um, waiting for their DVT rollout, they decide that they're bored with their hospitalization and and they just like to leave and they 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 realize that you want them to stay there. They seem to have full capacity, but they're just kind of done with this hospitalization. Uh, and so the intern doing due diligence gets this copy of a mimeograph of a copy of a fax um, and has the patient sign out against medical advice. And I'm just just wondering if, if that has any utility at all, if that protects you, if it protects the patients, and sort of how, how useful is that as a practice? Uh, so the AMA issue, I think, is, is really interesting. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a constantly evolving one. Uh, I, I think the general idea of AMA is, um, uh, I think, a, a bad idea. Um, it, it's mostly about us um, particularly when you're thinking about uh, making a patient go AMA and saying, well, if you go AMA, then I'm not going to give you your medications to go home with. Um, you're, I'm just discharging you and you don't get any of those, those medications because you're not listening to us. Right. Um, and, and that feels a lot like just, um, trying to uh, get retribution, uh, because the, the patient's not listening to you. Uh, and clearly is not helpful to anybody. And there's a, a lot of data out there that those patients who leave AMA um, and have that approach taken uh, are much more likely, not, not surprisingly, to come back um, as readmissions. And we all know how bad having readmissions is these days. So the the idea should really be, in, in my mind, about harm reduction. Um, first of all, trying to figure out why the patient really wants to leave. Um, maybe it's their board, but maybe there's actually um, uh, an important reason that you can talk to them about. Maybe they're scared. Maybe they have to pay the rent and they're going to get thrown out of their – evicted from their uh, their apartment if they don't pay the rent. There's all sorts of things. So important to talk to the patient about that. Maybe they're withdrawing and you're not treating them for their um, uh, withdrawing symptoms. So uh, important to try to get to the etiology of uh, and the bottom of why they, they want to leave. And then um, do some shared decision making about that and, and try, in my mind, to, to do as much harm reduction as possible. Well, if you're going to leave and you have endocarditis that I really think we should be treating with IV antibiotics, but you're taken off. Well, maybe there's an oral alternative that I can at least try so that you hopefully can get some sort of treatment, um, which would probably be better than, than nothing. Now, having them sign something, um, really, I, again, I think that is, um, just a power play oftentimes by the, the doctor. If you, as you do with everything you do, if you just document your conversation in the chart as to what you've talked to the patient about and you've told them how dangerous this is and what could happen and they've repeated it back to you and taught back to you um, that they know how dangerous this is and that they could possibly die and all those sorts of things and you put that in the chart, that's certainly every bit as good as the patient signing some AMA form and Half the time, the patient's not going to sign the AMA form anyway because they're really angry about something. And it, it, it so what, what in those patients were not held responsible. Um, so, so, <laughs> right. so signing, signing a form is, is I think a, a silly thing. Um, now it is true that there are certain states where if you write in the chart or you, um, memorialize it in the EMR, that the patient is leaving AMA, that they, that may not count against you if the patient comes back for a readmission. And so it might be reasonable then, um, to chart that the patient left AMA so that your hospital system doesn't lose out when it comes to, 
the arithmetic behind um, calculating uh, readmissions. Uh, but the one thing you should not tell the patient for sure is that their insurance company won't pay because they're leaving AMA. Yeah. That is totally an urban myth. It The, the insurance companies um, do not make decisions based on whether the patients are making good decisions. Uh, they make a decision based on whether the patient uh, needed to be in the hospital or not in your documentation, not whether the patient left AMA. So that's just a lie if you try to use that um, that line on patients. And, and I've seen certainly lots of people do that. So that my overall message is um, try to figure out why the patient's leaving AMA, work with them to, to try to convince them to stay, use your motivational interviewing skills. And then if they are really going to leave, document why they're leaving, document that you've had the discussion, document um, that you've told them the harms, and then try to figure out a way uh, that you can reduce the harm as much as possible uh, by getting them their medications and at least trying to come up with some alternative treatment so that the patient uh, doesn't have a, a terrible outcome. Well, I think there's also concern uh, for stigmatizing the patient, right? Like if you see uh, someone who has left against medical advice in the chart, there's there is a stigma associated with that. And so not certainly not intentionally, but I feel like you run the risk of actually just sort of providing worse care um, should they return just because of sort of the, I don't know, the bad feelings that are kind of attached just to the whole terminology. Oh, yeah. And um, and I'm sure that that, that uh, AMA designation is highlighted in, in some EMRs so that the patient is stigmatized that way. Uh, I, I totally agree. It, it doesn't end up helping the, the patient or the, those caring for him at all. So to switch gears for probably what's <laughs> going to be our last question for you, you mentioned if this patient was on IV antibiotics and they're, they have to leave, let's say they had to pay their rent or they had to be at something, and even though we want them on another day of antibiotics, uh, we want to switch them over. Let's say, let's say we actually did want to switch them to, to oral antibiotics on that day and, and send them home. Uh, for patients who are on IV antibiotics, do we do we have to watch them in the hospital before we send them home? Do we have to keep them on oral antibiotics for like twenty four hours and then send them home? Or is it? Yeah, so that that's a great question, Matt. Um, it's funny that, and I think we're not seeing nearly as many people do that these days. Uh, but it, this came out of a, a practice that surrounded community acquired pneumonias, and that there were these. Some peer review agencies that said, uh, you really need to watch the patient for a day on orals before we send them home. And you, you have to ask yourself, why? Why does this make intuitive sense? And, and I think if you think about the practice, it, it doesn't make any sense, right? You've given someone antibiotics for however many days and you give it to them, say, at 11 o'clock at night. And you said, well, I just need to watch them until tomorrow afternoon because I'm going to give them their first dose of oral medication tomorrow morning. Well, what, do you think that the half-life is so short that that IV antibiotic is going to completely be out of their system by the time you discharge them uh, late the next day? Uh, of course not. There's still IV uh, antibiotic in their system. Um, a lot of this stuff happened before we were doing uh, these early follow-up appointments that I think we're doing much more of these days, um, the the quick turnaround for the, the discharge follow-up. And now that we have all these, these discharge follow-ups, we're, we're able to see the patients right away to make sure that, that they're still doing well. Um, I know Paul Sachs was on recently and, and talks about a lot of the oral antibiotics that he loves. Um, and there's a great list of oral antibiotics that have great bioavailability, including things like Bact Bactrim and uh, clindamycin and doxycycline, these, these medications that have really good bioavailability that then we don't really need to worry about. And, and certainly the fluoroquinolones, although they're black boxed. Um, but we certainly don't need to worry about um, whether the patient's going to get enough of that into their system if, if they're able to, to take it. Uh, so I think if you really wanted to test whether the oral antibiotic was going to be sufficient, you probably need to keep the patient in, in the hospital for another two or three days. Um, 
and, and and no one is going to be allowed to do that. So the one day certainly makes no sense at all. Um, and when they've done the studies on this and, and looked at sort of these uh, observational studies where they have a cohort who was watched an extra day and a cohort who was sent home, of course, it if you look at those studies, who's going to be observed an extra day? It's the patients who are sicker, right? We're worried right, about right. them. We're going to watch them an extra day. And it, and it turns out that those observed patients um, end up doing just about the same um, if not a little bit worse, which isn't surprising because they're the sick ones compared to the ones who you just let ho- go home anyway. Um, so the, I think the bottom line then is if you're worried about someone, make sure they've got really good follow up. Don't try to watch them an extra day in the hospital because that's not when you're going to actually see the adverse events take place. And when they did watch them in the hospital, there are very, very few adverse events that take place in that 24 hours anyway. When, when I was reviewing for this, I, I actually, what I was coming across a lot of was more, they were, they, there were agencies advocating for earlier use of oral antibiotics and the bioavailability. And can you get away with giving even oral antibiotics, even while you're still in the hospital treating the patient rather than giving them IV from the start? So I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. I, I certainly haven't seen that take hold yet. It's, it's almost, uh, Maybe this is my mispers- misconception, but I I've almost thought that like it's it's better for if people are reviewing charts like why is this patient still in the hospital and you can justify well I have them on IV antibiotics that's why I'm watching them uh, making sure that these are working we're getting control of the infection and in some cases you could get you could, probably could have gotten hold of that infection in the hospital with an oral antibiotic but. I don't know. Is that something that you that you think about? Like, I have to have this patient on IV antibiotics because they're in the hospital and I need to justify them being here because they still need to be here? So uh, people talk about that a lot. I think in the end, it, you can justify the patient being there for other reasons mm-hmm. um, and and not necessarily them being on an IV antibiotic, but that you're worried you, th- you think they have a high risk for decompensation or, or what have you, um, yeah. that you don't need to do the IV antibiotic to try to justify. Um, and it is interesting. There's, a I think, a Cochrane review from 2007 that looked at severe UTIs that asked so, kind of just this question. And they said in their conclusion that there's no evidence suggesting that oral antibiotic therapy is less effective for treatment of severe UTI than, per- than parenteral uh, or initial parenteral therapy. Um, so at least for UTIs, Cochrane uh, is with you, Matt, uh, in wondering, uh, are we giving too much IV antibiotic up front? I'll, I'll wait for our antibiotic stewardship people to, to tell me when it's time to start just like <laughs> pulling the trigger on oral antibiotics from the start. Because I, I don't know the pharmacology or the literature well enough to do that. But I, I just I thought it was interesting that this it seems to there seems to be rumbling of this in the literature when I was looking through preparing for this talk. So. Yeah, I, um, I think as much often as, as often as we can to, to be able to give, uh, targeted therapy and, uh, as short as possible is, is probably the, uh, the wave of the future. Well, I think we have taken enough of your time. Definitely we've, we've gotten a lot of, uh, high value information from you to avoid some of these practices that we do for no reason. So, or these things we do for no reason, I should say. Um, did you want to give any final take-home points or did you want to give a plug for anything uh, before before you go? All right. So so two plugs. Uh, one is, uh, first of all, well, how about three plugs? One, uh, come to the Society of Hospital Medicine annual meeting and hear us talk about things we do for no reason. Uh, Tony Brew, my colleague uh, up in Boston, uh, gives the talk for the uh, adults in the room. And I have, uh, the last couple of years, been giving... Uh, things we do for no reason talks on uh, pediatric patients. Uh, so come on and, and listen to uh, our talks there. Uh, look for our articles in the Journal of Hospital Medicine on things we do for no reason. And if you are interested in writing one of them, feel free to email me and I will give you my email here. It is, is this dangerous to do? Uh, it is L <laughs> as in Leonard, F as in Frank at jhmi.edu. So lf at jhmi.edu. And then the last plug is we have a high value practice academic alliance. 
that uh, has uh, over 80 different institutions from across the country that are members of this alliance. We have a annual meeting this September that should be a great meeting in Baltimore. Uh, come uh, join us, listen about high value care, participate, see the great posters on high value care. Uh, and you can find us on, on the web. That's the High Value Practice Academic Alliance. Excellent. We will we will post all that, and you let me know how much your email gets blown up from <laughs> saying it. <on> <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited to see what emails you get. We, uh, yeah, I can tell you the show gets a lot of email, so I, I don't know I don't know how many people are going to be sending you high value care things, but uh, I apologize if it's more than you were hoping for. <laughs> oh, it's always great. I, I love talking with people about these different topics. It's, it's a lot of fun. And if they want to write one up, um, we are happy to work with them to, to get that done. All right. Awesome. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can, get, you can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We'd love to hear your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com, or you can reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I'm Dr. Justin Lee Burke. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And Stuart, sadly, not here tonight. Thank you to Justin Burke for producing this episode and to our team of curbsiders who help keep the show running. Hannah R. Abrams is on Twitter. Beth Garbs Garbatelli is on Instagram. And Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Thank you and good night. Also, if you have any recipes for shellfish, I think you could send them to Lenny and he'd probably appreciate it too. (laughs) (laughs) I just need to get over my allergy and we'll be fine.